Hello and welcome to episode 54 of the Replacement Level Podcast. I'm Ross Carey. Thanks for listening. Thrilled to be joined right now by Dan Shulman. Dan is a play-by-play announcer for ESPN. He handles their Sunday night baseball coverage as well as many of their college basketball games as well. You can give him a follow on Twitter at dshulman underscore ESPN. Dan, thanks for taking the time to join the podcast today. You got it, Ross. My pleasure. Well, I ask everyone this right at the top. Tell me what got you into baseball in the first place. Well, probably into baseball as a kid. Um, I'm from Toronto, born and raised, and the Blue Jays came around in 77. I, I was 10 years old at the time, and prior to the Blue Jays getting there, all I really knew was hockey. But as soon as the Jays showed up in 77, I was thrilled as a kid and, and have loved baseball ever since. How did broadcasting initially become a career for you? It really was something I stumbled into, to be honest with you. I went to uh, to university, and we say university in Canada, not college. I went to college in Canada at the University of Western Ontario and, and was looking for something to do above and beyond my studies, something extracurricular, and actually wanted to write. So uh, my first day there in, in my freshman year, I uh, went and found the campus newspaper, and there was a lineup of like 100 kids to try to get in. So I didn't have the patience for that, and across the hall, saw a door with a little nameplate on it that said Radio Western and uh, walked in there and asked them what they did. CHRW was the uh, the name of the radio station. And uh, they did they did all kinds of things. And I asked them if they did sports and they said yes. And I asked them if they needed volunteers and they said yes. And so for uh, the next few years, while while I was in school there, I, I just kind of volunteered and had fun at the campus radio station, did some football games, did some basketball games, did a talk show. Uh, but graduated in something else. I graduated with a degree in actuarial science and worked as an actuary for about six months before I said, you know what, I'm going to give radio a try and started sending out some demo tapes and eventually hooked up with a small station in uh, central Ontario, about 50 miles north of Toronto. And that's kind of how it got started. What was the first play-by-play job you got paid to do? Uh, play-by-play, let me see. Um, when I went up to, uh, to the small town, Barrie, Ontario, I did news and sports and weather and traffic and all that. And I, I did some, uh, minor hockey, but it wasn't a pay thing. It was a volunteer thing on the local community access station. So the first play-by-play I got paid to do, I've never been asked that question before. It's probably in 1994, the world championship of basketball was in Toronto. This was just after dream team went to Barcelona in 92. And then they had the world championships two years later and it was in Toronto. And I did that for Canadian television. So I'm guessing that was the first time I did play by play. How do you feel broadcasting a game is different now compared to when you were first breaking in? Oh, so many things have changed. I mean, social media obviously is a huge force now and it didn't exist. Uh, I I mean, back when I got into it, there was no internet, you know, I mean, uh, I remember, uh, you know, how you would prepare for games is so different. There was no satellite TV or direct TV or whatever, you know, the thousand channels on your cable package, whatever it is that you have. None of that existed. So, you know, I look back now and I wonder how I prepared for games. I mean, you would read the newspaper. That's what you would do. You would wait for the newspaper to come and you would look at box scores, that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, baseball, you could see some games on TV, but not many college basketball, uh, especially with me being in Canada, I could see hardly any. So uh, it kind of amazes me looking back how, how I was able to do the job, given that the resources were so, so few and, and and far between. But, you know, now every game and every sport is on and, and you can access anything you want online and social media has become, uh, you know, a force of nature. And whereas there used to be maybe five or six people around for the manager scrum, now there are 20 or 30 because there are so many more outlets. Uh, I mean, everything has changed. Everything about the business has changed. The look of a telecast has changed. The you know, the, what you can do with cameras and replays and graphics, uh, you know, everything has just uh, come so far in the last 20 years. 
Did you used to keep a record book or a stat book before all the information was available? Did you just write everything in hand, by hand yourself? No, I wouldn't say I did that. I mean, I was, uh, you know, a big stats guy as a kid, and, and uh, I don't know if I kept a notebook about it. I, I think there were times probably when I sat there and watched a game and I would doodle some numbers down or some thoughts down, but it's not something that I kept and still have or anything like that. I remember when I was a, a teenager, I, I remember sending this long uh, letter with a kind of a stats breakdown of how I thought the Blue Jays should use their bullpen. Uh, this is back in the eighties. You know, I sent it off to the editor of the newspaper, stuck it in the mail and lo and behold, one of my, uh, you know, an excerpt of it showed up in the letters to the editor a few days later in the, in the newspaper, which I thought was cool. So, but I, I was very into stats. I mean, the, you know, the new, the newspaper we subscribed to back then when I was a kid, I uh, came in the afternoon, so I'd get home from school, and that would be the first time I could see the hockey summaries or the baseball box scores or whatever it was. So uh, numbers were always very big to me. I actually don't use them. I don't think that much on telecast, especially considering kind of my stats and math background. But yeah, numbers have always been fun for me. How do you feel like ESPN or other national broadcasts, for that matter, could further use advanced metrics in their telecasts? It's interesting. It's a conversation we have a lot. And I think the broadcasts have uh, national telecasts and local telecasts have have come uh, a certain distance. Uh, I actually think a lot of that is better suited for, you know, columns that are written online or, you know, sites that are specifically devoted to that, you know, whether it's a baseball reference or a fan graphs or whatever the case may be. So um, I, I'm not sure um, we can delve into that as much uh, online or as in as much detail. First of all, we don't have that much time. Uh, and and I, still, I, I still maintain that... Um, for the average person, more people talk about, as an example, home runs and RBIs than war. Um, you know, I also, it, it's, it's a delicate balance because you don't want to talk under people, but you don't want to talk over people yet, yeah, but you've got all kinds of different people watching a game. So, um, you know, I, I know many, many years ago when a hitter would come up, automatically all you saw was batting average home runs, RBIs. Now you could see on base percentage, you could see OPS, you could see a, a number of different things. So I think television is moving in that direction, but I'm, you know, maybe I'm a bit of a dinosaur, but I think a lot of that, a lot of the advanced metrics are better suited for online than during a telecast. Yeah, and a lot of the local broadcasts still focus solely on batting average, home runs, and RBIs. But I wonder if the presentation could be slightly different. When a pitcher comes up, there's more of a full-screen graphic. There's more stats available. I wonder if the same thing could happen with a batter. Do you think that would work at all, or do you think that's too much information to digest because there's so many batters in a game? Um, again, you've got to consider that you're that there are many different kinds of people watching your game. So, um you know, there are many, many, many things going on during a baseball telecast and to insert a full page graphic, say the first time that each hitter came up might be in, in the minds of some might be a little bit too much or a little bit of overkill. And I, and, and again, there are a lot of things going on. I mean, you have to picture what the, what the screen is like, you know, things have changed. If you go back 20 years, uh, you know, you would between pitches all of a sudden, like you would see ball two, strike one out two, and it would cover the whole screen. Like it would literally cover the face uh, of the hitter and then it would go away before the next pitch. So, you know, the way it is now is not the way it, all, it has always been and it's not the way it's always going to be. Um, and, you know, certainly I think that, you know, different telecasts will push the envelope in different directions, not just statistical, um, to see what um, what people want. But, you know, for those who are not as statistically inclined, if you put up too many numbers, they don't see any of them. It just becomes a big mishmash of numbers and you can't absorb any of it. So, uh, you know, I, I think 
um, you know, we have to take into account what most of our people want. And is it better to leave some people wanting more or to do too much uh, more than people want? So it's a it's a fine line. We're not appealing that not every person who watches our game is exactly the same kind of baseball fan. You do college basketball games as well. Do you feel that the tone of a college broadcast has to be different than a major league baseball broadcast or professional broadcast because you're dealing with kids? To a certain extent, I mean, baseball is different than basketball, so the pace and the you know the energy can be a lot different. But um, yeah, I, I believe that to be true. You know, and, um, eighteen to twenty-one year olds who are student athletes are different than say twenty-one to thirty-five year olds who are professional athletes. So um, I, I, I don't find myself to be a very critical broadcaster, anyways. But I would probably be less critical in the same situation of a college kid uh, than of a professional athlete. But I, I try to always keep in the back of my mind, whether it's a college kid who's struggling in classes or who's moved away from home for the first time or who's having trouble making ends meet, you know, the professional athlete could have uh, a sick child or a, or a marriage that's in trouble or he's just gotten traded for the first time in his career. Uh, they're all human. And uh, I, I, you know, I don't say that explicitly on the air, but I try to keep that in mind when I'm talking about them. They're, they're, they could have lots of things going on in their lives. You do a lot of radio as well, postseason baseball. How do you adapt pace between doing radio and doing television? Yeah, I only I only bounce back and forth for baseball, and the only radio I do in baseball really is in the playoffs. So um, it, it was a real adjustment at the beginning, switching back and forth. But um, radio, you just have to keep in mind that a lot of the work that's being done by the screen and television, you have to do all of that in radio. You cannot say the count enough, the score enough, the inning enough, the outs enough, where the base runners are enough. You you have to do it over and over and over and over. No matter how much you think you're doing it, you can do it more. So radio tends to, I think, gravitate more towards the play-by-play announcer. I have to keep people informed about everything that's going on. You can't miss a pitch. You can't talk over a pitch. You can't have a, a lengthy conversation like you can in television. I mean, if you do, you you know, the analyst pauses, you just call the pitch, the analyst gets back into it again. So they are totally different. I, I love baseball on the radio. I think baseball is the best radio sport there is. Uh, I'm lucky, too, in that the radio games I'm doing on baseball are the playoffs. So, it's uh, you know, there, there's heightened excitement there, but I love doing radio. Yeah, baseball on the radio is great, and it's hard because not only are you describing more, but you can't allow for any silence, really. No, you can't have silence on radio for more than probably three, four seconds. Uh, although sometimes it's nice to hear the natural sound, not the crack of the bat. You better you better be ta- you know you better be saying what's happening with a when you hear the crack of the bat. But you know some of the uh, just the noises of a baseball park or uh, of a baseball stadium are nice for uh, for a few seconds here and there. In television, you can let it go for a while, and it's nice to let it go for a while. You know, it's nice to give people a break every now and again. Two years ago, ESPN started using a live strike zone with their telecasts. I love it. A lot of people didn't. There was some backlash to it. What were your thoughts on that? Uh, I was fine with it. I think a lot of new things take getting used to, and I think everybody likes it now. You know, um, I, I mean, I remember if you go back further, what we call the bug, which is just the score and the you know the, the count and the outs and the pitch velocity and the pitcher's name and how many pitches he's thrown. People freaked out about that. Take the, everybody, everybody loves that now. You know, take that off the screen and, and, and watch what happens. So um, I was fine with the live strikes, and it was a bit of an adjustment, and and. You know, sometimes, I mean, a pitch can be on the edge. And if it's a half an inch this way, it's a strike. Half an inch that way, it's not. So I don't get too caught up in, you know, he blew the call because it says it's a strike. Because, you know, a pitch right on the black can can be, um, you know, can be thought of as a strike or not a strike by an umpire. But uh, I like having it in there. And I think viewers like having it in there, too. How do you think broadcasting a baseball game will be different in 20 years? How do you think the presentation will be different in 20 years? 
I, I think we'll probably have um, more access, more, you know, technology has changed so much. Super slow-mo cam, uh, cameras that bring you replays that we never could have imagined. Uh, you know, I, back when I was really, really young, too young to remember, but I've watched this on classic games. A replay was just the same thing at the same speed. You just showed it again. There was no such thing as slow motion. So uh, I think we'll continue to have more access in terms of camera angles and audio. Uh, you know, audio has come a long way, and, and I think people will, will continue to push the envelope uh, in that regard. Um, uh, it, it's an interesting question because it's tough to predict the future. It's easy now to look back and say, well, I, I knew that was going to happen, but it's tough to predict the future. But I think it'll continue to be just about access, trying to bring the viewer closer to the game, closer to the dugout, closer uh, closer to the athlete. I want to ask you about a very surreal night that you were a part of. You were broadcasting the Sunday night baseball game when Osama bin Laden was killed, and the news of that broke. You broke the news on the air. Uh, the crowd found out about it during the game. It was a crazy atmosphere. Tell me a bit what was going on and what that night was like for you. It, it was surreal. It's certainly not something they train you to do in the uh, in the play-by-play handbook. And it was late in the game. It was in Philadelphia. The Mets were there against the Phillies on a Sunday night. And Bobby Valentine was one of the people working with me at the time and kind of nudged me with his elbow and showed me his phone. And it was a text. I don't remember from who. It was a text saying something to the effect of they got bin Laden or we got bin Laden. And, you know, obviously, I'm sure I probably arched my eyebrow and bulged my eyes and I didn't say anything on the air right away. So... I went on TalkBack, which for people who don't know is in my ability to talk to the people in the truck, the producer and the director and the editorial people and whoever else may be in there. And and I said, do you have anything on this? And they said, yeah, we're corroborating. Don't say anything yet. Just keep calling the game. So I keep calling the game. And a minute or two later, they, you know, again, as the game is going on, this isn't during a commercial break, they tell me, yes, it's um, it's confirmed. And, and so I played it very safe. I, I was advised to just tell, you know, I told people what had happened and I advised them if they want more details, they can tune over to ABC to our, you know, that they're in our corporate family, tune or turn over to ABC news for the latest on this. And, and then it became stranger and stranger because you're bouncing back and forth between calling a baseball game and talking about the most wanted man in the world having been captured and killed. And then the crowd starts getting a hold of it because people are texting them as the news breaks out and the spontaneous chance of USA, USA break out of the ballpark and everybody in the ballpark knows, except the players. They don't have any idea what's going on because obviously they don't have their phones with them. Eventually, they found out from security people or camera people or whoever it may be. But it, uh, it was a, a strange night and a, a night I'll never forget. You're also one of the broadcasters for the Blue Jays, so I want to ask you about them for a little bit. The Blue Jays currently find themselves atop of the AL East. They're tied with the Orioles. The Red Sox are a game back. You're in New York with the Blue Jays right now. A lot of the talk has been on Aaron Sanchez, whether or not they're going to restrict his innings, make him a reliever, shut him down. What do you think the plan is for Aaron Sanchez right now? You know, I don't I don't think, Ross, they know what they're going to do. I think every couple of weeks they come up with a plan and then, Maybe they modify the plan because he keeps pitching brilliantly and he shows no sign of wear and tear. And I'm sure on the inside, Mark Shapiro and Ross Atkins, the president and the GM of the Blue Jays, are nervous that that he's going to get hurt. So the talk has always been he'll move to the bullpen at some point. He'll move to the bullpen at some point. But they... They've kind of backed off saying that emphatically right now. They picked up Francisco Liriano in a trade, and they're actually going with a six-man rotation right now. They're, I think, through their second turn through a six-man rotation. And I honestly think they're taking it turn by turn. If he starts to show some signs of fatigue or wear and tear, I think they'll move him to the bullpen. 
but with some off days and a six-man rotation, I think there's a possibility that they're going to leave him in the rotation for the rest of the season. Maybe they skip him once and then bring him back. Who knows? You know, he's already thrown more innings than he ever has, but he's pitching as well as any pitcher in baseball right now, and they're in they're in a heated pennant race. So he's made this complicated by pitching as well as he has because they want to leave him in there. They want to win games. And, and you know, the one thing that – the only thing that I – feel strongly about is, you know, we've had situations like this before where pitchers have been shut down and that's fine. I get it. But if they're going to move him to the bullpen, is there evidence that suggests that having him pitch three days a week out of the bullpen makes him any safer than keeping him in the rotation? I'm not sure there is. I'm not saying there isn't. I'm just not sure there is. I don't know if they're making him safer by moving him to the bullpen and and, uh, changing his routine. Something tells me that if that, you know, what might be safest for him, if they're going to let him keep pitching at all, is just to leave where he is. Do you feel like that the Blue Jays' sense of urgency to win, in part because Batista and Encarnacion are free agents at the end of the year, do you feel like they're handling the situation with Sanchez any differently? No, I don't think so. I think what's what's you know causing them to hedge is that he's been so good. If he were eight and seven with a three ninety five ERA, he'd be in the bullpen. But he's whatever he is twelve and two with a two ninety ERA or whatever the numbers are. Um, I, I don't think. I think they expected him to be good. I don't think they expected him to be this good. You know, he's a big, strong kid. He put 20 pounds on in the offseason. He he blew them away in the spring and beat out Gavin Floyd for the so-called fifth spot of the rotation uh, and then has pitched just as well all season as he, as he was in the spring. But I, I don't think that um, – I guess what you're asking is because those two guys are up, is there an urgency to win now? And because there is an urgency to win now, do they leave him in the rotation? I, I, I don't know that I draw a connection between those two events. I, I think it was – or it is almost entirely based upon their position in the standings, regardless of Encarnacion and Bautista's contracts, and the fact that Sanchez is as good a pitcher as there is in the game right now. Jose Batista is currently on the disabled list with a knee injury. Is this something that's going to carry on and linger all year, or should he be playing again when his 15 days are up? Uh, they're hoping he'll be back when the 15 days is up They're They're not saying a whole lot about it right now. Um, I mean, it, it looked like kind of a harmless play and he actually finished the game and then he went on the disabled list the next day. Um, you know, if it's not 15 days, then, then from a blue Jay perspective, hopefully it's September when the rosters expand, he's on the DL right now. Kevin Pilar's on the DL right now as well. So they're missing two of their starting outfielders and as good as their offense can be at times, it can get shut down at times as well. And right now, when you look at the bottom of the lineup, because they're having to fill in with other people, they're not getting a whole lot out of the bottom of the lineup. They were shut down by the Yankees, by Chad Green and the Yankees last night, and uh, they need Pilar and Bautista back fairly soon. A pitcher for the Blue Jays who struggled this year is Marcus Stroman. A lot of people thought he could have the type of year this year that Aaron Sanchez has had. What have you seen in him this year, and what do you think has led to some of his struggles? Well, he's been hot and cold. I think he's still learning about who he is. He doesn't have the pure raw stuff that Sanchez has. Uh, Sanchez will throw 96. Stroman will throw 92, 93. Stroman's also really tinkered with his his repertoire over the last couple of years. He used to be a big four-seamer curveball guy, and now he's much more of a sinker-slider guy. So... With him, and he knows this, because he's 5'8", he doesn't have the margin for error. Um, He doesn't get the downward tilt on the ball that a guy like a Sanchez would get. So um, his location is really, really important. He can't fall into patterns. He's got to keep the ball down at the knees to get ground balls. If it's at the thigh, it's it's a line drive. And and 
Um, you know, he's gone from throwing certain kinds of pitches to other pitches, to throwing a lot of pitches, to just narrowing it down to two or three pitches. He's still, he's still learning about himself, but when he's on, he can be really good. He's a very confident kid, very intelligent kid, works hard, uh, studies his craft meticulously. And, uh, he's a very, very important part of this Blue Jays team. You know, Sanchez has been great. Estrada has been great. Hap has been great. Um, they need one more guy and, and Stroman's in, in my mind, most likely that guy. Russell Martin is another player that struggled this year. This one really came out of nowhere as he was great the last three years. He's been better lately, but what have you seen in him that's caused him to struggle this year? Well, he got off to a really tough start. He's swinging the bat much, much better the last few weeks. Had a couple of home runs over the weekend. He started driving in some runs. He's been much more productive. I I think he's got a really tough job. He catches a lot, like a, like a Yadier Molina does. You know, Josh Tolley will catch R.A. Dickey, and, and Martin basically catches the other four guys. So um, playing on turf, catching four out of five. And he was just, he talked at the beginning of the season, he was really fighting. He was striking out a lot, and, and mechanically he just wasn't right. But but he's been good lately. He and he and Tulowitzki have been, Tulowitzki's been great lately, and, and they've given the Blue Jays a little more offense in the middle of the lineup, which has helped offset the absence of guys like Pilar and Bautista. Russell Martin has rated as one of the best pitch framers. He's great at stealing strikes. Have you ever talked to him about why he's able to do that? I haven't talked with him about that, no. So, but he, you know, he does have a reputation of uh, of being one of the best at that. And and you know, all I know is the playoffs follow him around. And and I don't think you can attach a statistical formula to that. But with the with the Yankees, with the Dodgers, with the Pirates, with the Blue Jays, he seems to wind up in the postseason a lot. And you can tell how much he cares about about working with the pitchers. He gets beat up a lot back, back there. He plays a lot, as I mentioned. He's in his 30s now. He's not a, you know, a young kid anymore. I haven't heard him talk about the framing, but, um, but I, I know everything that happens behind the plate is something that he takes a lot of pride in. What do the Blue Jays need to win the AL East? I think they need to get healthy. They need to get Bautista and Pilar back. Um, and, uh, and I think Stroman needs to be good. I think those, those are the, the two biggest keys, whether they move Sanchez or not. Uh, I think Stroman being good and having decent offense um, are are imperative uh, for the Blue Jays if they're going to win the division. You know, Baltimore is hanging around. Somehow they've done it with poor starting pitching all season. And now, you know, Dylan Bundy's going well, so they've got another arm that looks like they can count on in the bullpen. Boston doesn't have great pitching, but their offense is great. So these these are three good teams, not great teams, good teams, but they all have flaws. They all could make the playoffs. But for the Blue Jays, I think it's get healthy and have Stroman be good down the stretch. You've been listening to Dan Shulman. You can give him a follow on Twitter at dshulman underscore ESPN. Dan, thanks so much for taking the time to join the podcast today. All right, Roz, you got it. My pleasure.